Letter fifty nine of Moral Letters to Lucilius by Lucius Annius Seneca, translated by Richard M. Gummier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On Pleasure and Joy. I received great pleasure from your letter. Kindly allow me to use these words in their everyday meaning without insisting upon their stoic import. For we Stoics hold that pleasure is a vice. Very likely it is a vice. But we are accustomed to use the word when we wish to indicate a happy state of mind. I am aware that if we test words by our formula, even pleasure is a thing of ill repute, and joy can be attained only by the wise. For joy is an elation of spirit, of a spirit which trusts in the goodness and truth of its own possessions. The common usage, however, is that we derive great joy from a friend's position as consul or from his marriage, or from the birth of his child. But these events, so far from being matters of joy, are more often the beginnings of sorrow to come. No, it is a characteristic of real joy that it never ceases and never changes into its opposite. Accordingly, when our Virgil speaks of the evil joys of the mind, his words are eloquent, but not strictly appropriate, for no joy can be evil. He has given the name joy to pleasures, and has thus expressed his meaning, for he has conveyed the idea that men take delight in their own evil. Nevertheless, I was not wrong in saying that I received great pleasure from your letter, for although an ignorant man may derive joy, if the cause be an honorable one, yet, since his emotion is wayward, and is likely soon to take another direction, I call it pleasure." for it is inspired by an opinion concerning a spurious good. It exceeds control, and is carried to excess. But, to return to the subject, let me tell you what delighted me in your letter. You have your words under control. You are not carried away by your language, or borne beyond the limits which you have determined upon. Many writers are tempted by the charm of some alluring phrase to some topic other than that which they had set themselves to discuss. But this has not been so in your case. All your words are compact and suited to the subject. You say all that you wish, and you mean still more than you say. This is a proof of the importance of your subject matter, showing that your mind, as well as your words, contains nothing superfluous or bombastic. I do, however, find some metaphors, not indeed daring ones, but the kind which have stood the test of use. I find similes also. Of course, if anyone forbids to use them, maintaining that poets alone have that privilege, he has not apparently read any of our ancient prose writers, who had not yet learned to affect a style that should win applause. For those writers, whose eloquence was simple and directed only toward proving their case, are full of comparisons, and I think that these are necessary, not for the same reason which makes them necessary for the poets, but in order that they may serve as props to our feebleness, to bring both speaker and listener face to face with the subject under discussion. For example, I am at this very moment reading Sextius, he is a keen man and a philosopher who, though he writes in Greek, has the Roman standard of ethics. One of his similes appealed especially to me, 
that of an army marching in hollow square in a place where the enemy might be expected to appear from any quarter ready for battle this said he is just what the wise man ought to do he should have all his fighting qualities deployed on every side so that wherever the attack threatens there his supports may be ready to hand and may obey the captain's command without confusion this is what we notice in armies which serve under great leaders we see how all the troops simultaneously understand their general's orders since they are so arranged that a signal given by one man passes down the ranks of cavalry and infantry at the same moment this he declares is still more necessary for men like ourselves for soldiers have often feared an enemy without reason and the march which they thought most dangerous has in fact been most secure but folly brings no repose fear haunts it both in the van and in the rear of the column and both flanks are in a panic folly is pursued and confronted by peril it blenches at everything it is unprepared it is frightened even by auxiliary troops but the wise man is fortified against all inroads he is alert he will not retreat before the attack of poverty or of sorrow or of disgrace or of pain he will walk undaunted both against them and among them we human beings are fettered and weakened by many vices we have wallowed in them for a long time and it is hard for us to be cleansed we are not merely defiled we are dyed by them but to refrain from passing from one figure to another i will raise this question which i often consider in my own heart why is it that folly holds us with such an insistent grasp it is primarily because we do not combat it strongly enough because we do not struggle towards salvation with all our might secondly because we do not put sufficient trust in the discoveries of the wise and do not drink in their words with open hearts we approach this great problem in too trifling a spirit but how can a man learn in the struggle against his vices an amount that is enough if the time which he gives to learning is only the amount left over from his vices none of us goes deep below the surface we skim the top only and we regard the smattering of time spent in the search for wisdom as enough and to spare for a busy man what hinders us most of all is that we are too readily satisfied with ourselves if we meet with someone who calls us good men or sensible men or holy men we see ourselves in this description not content with praise and moderation we accept everything that shameless flattery heaps upon us as if it were our due we agree with those who declare us to be the best and wisest of men although we know that they are given to much lying and we are so self-complacent that we desire praise for certain actions when we are especially addicted to the very opposite yonder person hears himself called most gentle when he is inflicting tortures or most generous when he is engaged in looting or most temperate when he is in the midst of drunkenness and lust thus 
it follows that we are unwilling to be reformed, just because we believe ourselves to be the best of men. Alexander was roaming as far as India, ravaging tribes that were but little known even to their neighbors. During the blockade of a certain city, while he was reconnoitering the walls and hunting for the weakest spot in the fortifications, he was wounded by an arrow. Nevertheless, he long continued the siege, intent on finishing what he had begun. The pain of his wound, however, as the surface became dry and as the flow of blood was checked, increased. His leg gradually became numb as he sat his horse, and finally, when he was forced to withdraw, he exclaimed, "'All men swear that I am the son of Jupiter, but this wound cries out that I am mortal.' Let us also act in the same way. Each man, according to his lot in life, is stultified by flattery. We should say to him who flatters us, You call me a man of sense, but I understand how many of these things which I crave are useless, and how many of the things which I desire will do me harm. I have not even the knowledge which satiety teaches to animals of what should be the measure of my food or my drink. I do not yet know how much I can hold. I shall now show you how you may know that you are not wise. The wise man is joyful, happy, and calm, unshaken. He lives on a plain with the gods. Now go, question yourself. If you are never downcast, if your mind is not harassed by any apprehension, through anticipation of what is to come, if day and night your soul keeps on its even and unswerving course, upright and content with itself, then you have attained to the greatest good that mortals can possess. If, however, you seek pleasures of all kinds and all directions, you must know that you are as far short of wisdom as you are short of joy. Joy is the goal which you desire to reach, but you are wandering from the path if you expect to reach your goal while you are in the midst of riches and official titles. In other words, if you seek joy in the midst of cares. These objects for which you strive so eagerly, as if they would give you happiness and pleasure, are merely causes of grief. All men of this stamp, I maintain, are pressing on in pursuit of joy, but they do not know where they may obtain a joy that is both great and enduring. One person seeks it in feasting and self-indulgence, another in canvassing for honors and in being surrounded by a throng of clients, another in his mistress, another in idle display of culture and in literature that has no power to heal. All these men are led astray by delights which are deceptive and short-lived. Like drunkenness, for example, which pays for a single hour of hilarious madness by a sickness of many days, or like applause and the popularity of enthusiastic approval which are gained and atoned for, at the cost of great mental disquietude. Reflect, therefore, on this, that the effect of wisdom is a joy that is unbroken and continuous. The mind of a wise man is like the ultra-lunar firmament. Eternal calm pervades that region." You have, then, a reason for wishing to be wise, if the wise man is never deprived of joy. This joy springs only from the knowledge that you possess the virtues. None but the brave, the just, the self-restrained can rejoice.
and when you query, what do you mean? Do not the foolish and the wicked also rejoice? I reply, no more than lions who have caught their prey. When men have wearied themselves with wine and lust, when night fails them before their debauch is done, when the pleasures which they have heaped upon a body that is too small to hold them begin to fester. At such times they utter in their wretchedness those lines of Virgil. Thou knowest how, amid false glittering joys, we spent that last of nights. Pleasure lovers spend every night amid false glittering joys, and just as if it were their last. But the joy which comes to the gods, and to those who imitate the gods, is not broken off, nor does it cease. But it would surely cease were it borrowed from without. Just because it is not in the power of another to bestow, neither is it subject to another's whims. That which fortune has not given, she cannot take away. Farewell. End of letter 59 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.